I don't know what those white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institution. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad. On today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. Today's topic is the Tulsa Race Massacre. We first go over the historical context of the time, what actually happened, what justice did occur, and why it's helpful to know that it even happened. We hope you enjoy the discussion. All right, Garen, can you catch us up on what has happened since slavery to 1920? Um, And can you paint the picture for us uh, of what's happening during this time? Yeah, so uh, the events that we're going to be talking about in Tulsa happened 1921, just after World War I. Um, But just to paint the picture of where we're at in the story, after slavery, black people did not own anything. They were not given a start as normal citizens of America. Um, The 40 acres and a mule promise was withdrawn. Uh, It fell through that they weren't given land. And so there's a a system that formed in the South called sharecropping. Sharecropping was a system where black people would rent land from the white landowners. Because remember, the white people still had all the ownership, all the assets. Um, And then they would work the land. They would sell, uh, either pay with money or with a portion of what they grew. It would pay for the use of the land. But they would also have to rent tools and um, other services from the white people. And oftentimes at the end of a year, the black people would owe the white landowners more than they had even made. And so it was like an unworkable system where they could never get out of poverty. It was like a a poverty trap. Um, But the other thing is, uh, to make it worse, the black people couldn't quit the sharecropping system. Because white people throughout the South passed uh, the Black Codes, uh, which included uh, a bunch of uh, crazy, absurd laws. We said this in the first episode um, that fed the whole convict leasing system. Um, But also included in that there were vagrancy laws where they actually criminalized not having a job. And so if you're a black person working for a white farmer in the system where you can't get ahead, can't build up any wealth, Um, And then you also can't quit because the moment you quit, your former boss can uh, press charges against you for not having a job. And so how are you going to negotiate for fair wages in a system where it's not just that you can't strike, you literally can't even quit? So as an oppressive system, black people didn't have a voice, didn't have a way out, and they were just trapped in poverty. Um, A lot of Uh, black people then, uh, both because of just the unfairness of the sharecropping system and because of racial terror, violence um, that kind of from the Civil War on um, continued um, and escalated, uh, a lot of them fled north. Um, And so a big uh, chunk of those came to Tulsa and began to settle into Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, The 
area of Greenwood was founded by a black man who um, bought up a bunch of land and started to sell it to the black people who would come in. And it became just this thriving community. Um, it economically um, grew and uh, they they ended up having um, building up all kinds of wealth, having a uh, hundred blocks of businesses and homes. Many of the homes were... Uh, quite impressive. We're like nicer than the homes of uh, a lot of the people in the white community in the rest of Tulsa. And they had uh, a high school at the time in 1921 when the events in Tulsa happened. They had a high school that taught Latin and chemistry and physics. It was like a real top-notch school. They had a three-story hotel, um, three grocery stores, two theaters, um, one that played silent films accompanied by a, a live grand piano. Um, some just like luxury. If you look at pictures of the time, it just, it's like one of those little downtown areas that just, you just want to go into the photo and visit it. It had character and hope and it was lively. It was a place where black people could flee from sharecropping, come in without an education and the community would come around them and give them a chance in life, a chance to actualize their potential to to grow and that the median wage in Greenwood was higher in that day than the current minimum wage which for back then um, is is really impressive yeah um, so people had a chance to like and that's the median wage that's just like normal people that's not even the wealthiest there it was a place where black people could come and could thrive uh, there were 23 churches there were two newspapers a public library they had an early taxi service um, that formed. There were um, six of the residents of Greenwood owned private airplanes, which was even more impressive then than it is now. Yeah. And it just shows how well this community was doing and that that wealth wasn't all just brought in. It was generated there in this thriving uh, business and commercial district. And you, you said it started, how did it start again? Somebody bought land and then was selling it to the community? Yes, O.W. Gurley, actually. Um, He was a young entrepreneur, um, and he worked for President Grover Cleveland. He had some type of presidential appointment, and so he moved to uh, Oklahoma, to Tulsa. And this was like, what, 30, no, 41 years after slavery was over, and he bought 40 acres of land, um, and he basically decided that it was only going to be sold to black people, to, okay. to, to colored is the word they used at the time. And so they, there was a road in that, that they named Greenwood Avenue, and it was named for Greenwood, Mississippi. And so many, like, black uh, migrant workers, they were fleeing, like, running... Uh, coming from Mississippi to flee oppression, um, and so they, this place became like a like a city of refuge, um, because for that pe- for a period there was no um, there was no persecution. It was like a safe haven, a utopia, um, and there was no road that ran like like straight through the white and the black part of town, like it had its own area. Hmm. And so it was, there, there was a safety net there for the, the black residents. Okay. So it sounds like this place is awesome. Uh, yeah. what, what happened? 
So white people got jealous.、Um, and I want to kind of pause and dive into this before we actually even get into all the details of what went down in the Tulsa riot.、Um, just what would make Thousands,、uh, a crowd of five to 25,000 white people get guns and go in and burn Greenwood to the ground. Like, it's, it's hard to even imagine what was going on in the psychology of the white people in Tulsa、um, to cause them to do something like that. So it's worth pausing and reflecting on.、Um, I think a big part of it was just. Jealousy that a lot of、uh, the, the Great Depression had happened. The, a lot of the white people、um, were economically not doing very well. And then they would look and see black people with more luxury than they had. And so there was a lot of jealousy of that. And thriving、um, yeah. independently, like self sufficiently,、yeah. mm-hmm. not relying on the system, the next level, the next、um, enslavement system. Um, which we, we go from slavery to now sharecropping、um, to basically try to have, continue with labor,、mm-hmm. with、uh, black labor. And so that was non existent、um, in, this, in this area, in this town. And so, yeah, jealousy and、mm-hmm. the fact that black people were deemed in, inferior and there were documents and books and science and all, that thing, all those things. Um, that affirmed, you know, we have scientists and, and, and doctors saying that black people are inferior, their brains are this size, and they come, you know, just, just all this craziness、uh, that they came up with to try to substantiate、um, this idea that black people were inferior, and then for black people to then, out of nothing, and this is the part that I feel like is so important, like, They were freed to zero. <laughs>、mm-hmm. Like, all right, you're free. With and, nothing. And, and nothing.、Mm-hmm. And so, no nest egg. Nothing. And so, I mean, because they weren't getting paid in the first place, right? They were enslaved. And so, with nothing, they actually went and made something. And this wasn't just in Greenwood, this was across the country. And It just dispelled every notion of inferiority because there was this success and there was this thriving and flourishment and education and colleges being built. And like just everything that white people were afforded, black people were creating out of thin air, like out of zero and out of concrete.、Mm-hmm. And still facing. Headwinds of racial、exactly. violence and not having access to all the banking credit and resources that the white community had. And、exactly. here, without all that and with resistance, they were still building it. I mean, creating their own commerce, creating, I mean, just, yeah, out of nothing. And so, and they were still doing it. Well, then what happens to all those books and articles and journals that say, hey, black people are inferior? Well, it's proven to be a lie. Um, and so basically, just this fear of black people and what they could possibly do and that they could take over and what that would mean to white livelihood and white, the white establishment and lives. And so th- then comes this thing of, well, 
you know, we, we need to fear for the safety of our women. And they put it on white women that black men are savages. And so this, you know, this whole thing about bumping into a white woman or being accused of rape, you know, this, you know, accusing black men of raping white women, that would just incite this violence and this, I would say, like this savagery um, from white people to be able to justify ending, like afflicting black bodies and, 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 and ending black life and uproot, like it, 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 it's just astounding. Like we read these things and like Garen was saying earlier, we just kind of skip over things not really sitting in the weight of it. But these were human beings. And if we would put that in the context of today, we would be terrified. Like when 9-11 happened, it was just like the whole world stopped. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. COVID's happened. The whole world stopped. Like these, these catastrophic or um, just horrific, traumatizing things happening. We're like, oh my gosh. Um, but when we read about history just from a few decades ago, it's like the atrocity, it just, it, it just skips over. It, we, we don't even process it. Mm-hmm. It's weird. Yeah. You mentioned the white fear of black people. I think that part of that, like white people had treated black people unjustly for exactly. so long. Absolutely. It's like, well, if they get the upper hand, what are they going to do to us? And in some places yes. in the South, there were more black people than white people. Yep. Um, but then I think the other component of it um, is that white supremacy was an idea that had been used for so long to justify the mistreatment of black people and of slaves. Yep. Um, and when slavery became illegal, um, basically, let me say it this way. Nobody wants to think of themselves as a bad person. Right. Everyone thinks of themselves as a good person. Yeah. Like you, I mean, Hitler thought of himself as a good person. With a good cause. Yeah, anyone can come up with a reason why they're a good person. And humans, all of us, are masters at justifying our own uh, sin, weakness, uh, brokenness, whatever word you want to use. We all come up with narratives that make us the good guy. And so when white people were enslaving black people, um, it's it's pretty apparent that that makes you a bad person, but they, they had to not be bad people. So they came up with this narrative of white people are better than black people because that's how they self-justified. And we're saving them from themselves because they're savages. Oh yeah. there's And, all- and we're proselytizing. We're making Christians out of them because they're heathens. Just mm-hmm. all of this, you know, imputed morality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that was completely rooted in immorality. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of quotes of uh, white people that you can look into where that they would say things like how they were um, the, how the whipping of slaves was tutelage for uh, for this uh, inferior race and how maybe through enough centuries of this they will rise to the level of white people like right. they they made the story like we're doing them a favor yeah bringing them out of Africa and training this inferior race oh, it, yeah but it was just like self justification is clearly motivated by greed and just a want desire for free labor, but they had to build a narrative around it to they still did. feel good. And even like just the propaganda of um, getting black um, enslaved pastors to preach uh, a truncated gospel, like that 
endorsed slavery and affirmed slavery and affirmed the position of white people. And, and I think about Phyllis Wheatley, like her, some of her poetry was written where she would say thank you for, you know, basically saving us from Africa. Um, and, you know, these people in positions of power, if they're, if they're supporting you, if they're funding you and they're keeping you from having a life in, in, in the fields um, with brutal labor, people are inclined to, you know, to want to save themselves. Like, I don't even hate on people doing what they had to do to live. Um, but they would use the, those, you know, the, the writers and the people that they would elevate um, to further oppress black people and affirm, you know, basically to substantiate their, 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 the injustice, to, to substantiate white supremacy and the need for it and God's uh, blessing of it as mm-hmm. we, you know, we, we, we just dealt with the whole white blessing thing. Mm-hmm. Like literally, it was perceived as a white blessing um, because they, 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 they believed in God and they carried Christianity with them and that God was blessing them. And he was, you know, he gave them these people to look over and mm-hmm. yeah, all of that. Yep. So white people came to this crossroads then. I mean, yeah. Slavery's over and we want to think of ourselves as good people, justified, um, moral, like a lot of them were claimed to be Christians. Um, and so now we either have to repent of slavery mm-hmm. and white supremacy mm-hmm. and have a reckoning where we admit that everything we did was cruel and wrong because white people aren't superior. Right. But that would require reparations. That, I mean, that was like, not even, even even like the the resistance reparations now. As people say, like, well, I wasn't alive then. Well, they were like these were right. the people who were the slave masters and their former slaves. So to to repent would have required uh, re- reconciliation. It would have been costly, well, and yeah. they didn't want to pay that cost. So instead, what they did is they continued to justify their former actions by maintaining a system of white supremacy, and yeah. and so they clung to it. And now. Enter Tulsa, enter Greenwood. Here's this community that proves that black people are not inferior. Here's right. this community where they are thri- thriving even despite all the obstacles that they face. Yeah. And are even surpassing the wealth of, of many of the white residents of Tulsa. Yeah. And so there was just, it was a, a powder keg that just needed a match. Yeah. Okay. And you said that there were like five to 20,000 people with. Guns and stuff. Yeah, so the that's where the story goes is that the white citizens of Tulsa burnt Greenwood to the ground. Um, it, there were there's different reports. Uh, history did not do a good job recording what happened, and we will get into why that is later on. Um, so, that, like a lot of the numbers um, are like it's hard to know the exact number, um, but various reports put it from five to. 25,000. Um, it was probably at least 5,000 white residents that participated in burning it down. Okay, so they came to the town and burn it down. And then I, I'm assuming there were probably a lot of people that died during this. Yeah. Um, 300. What, what happened after that? So that happened and then what? Yeah, so, so the whole thing started, the, the, the match that lit the powder keg was there was a, a 19-year-old black boy Dick Rowland, who uh, 
reports will put it slightly differently, but most likely uh, what happened is he bumped into, started to trip and um, bumped into an elevator operator named Sarah Page, 17-year-old elevator operator. Um, so he bumped into her. Um, she lit, she didn't want to press charges. She, uh, she told police that uh, he had just startled her. Hmm. Um, but despite that, despite her even saying he didn't do anything, the white newspapers in Tulsa uh, printed the story, sensationalized it, said that it was like a rape or an attempted rape, and tried to stir up white people um, to lynch uh, Dick Rowland in order to um, try to like strike fear into the hearts of black Tulsa residents. Um, and so uh, black people from Greenwood knew that um, that Dick was likely to be lynched. And so they, about 30 armed black men, um, uh, many of them were World War I vets who were back mm. from the war, back from yeah. the trenches. Um, and in the war, a lot of black people um, kind of realized uh, through the military uh, structure and system that like, we can be equal. Like, they, 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 there was a dignity that black people found. Uh, black World War One veterans, a lot of them came back um, with just like, uh, I'm not going to put up with the old way anymore because I fought for this country. Exactly. I, I, I risked my life for this country. Um, but a lot of the World War One veterans were lynched when they got back yep. because when they stood up with pride and wouldn't take it anymore, um, like... That went against white supremacy. So they were many of the victims of lynchings in that decade were World War One veterans. And basically, what happened here is World War One veteran went. Uh, they went twice to the sheriff's office and they said, "Hey, we don't want Dick Rowland to be lynched. Can we help protect him? Can you use us to help keep there from being a lynching? We'll help guard the jail." Um, so these these thirty black men went and. The the sheriff declined both times. The second time, as they're leaving, uh, a one of the uh, white men in the mob outside. There was a, a couple hundred white people with guns who were like wanting to. Uh, they were crying out for uh, Dick Rowland to be released to them so they could lynch him. And one of those white people confronted the World War One veteran and said, "You shouldn't have the right to carry a gun." Started to grab his gun away, and the gun was discharged. And that became the spark. Uh, there became a, there was a firefight that left um, some of the thirty black men and um, some of the white two hundred white men died. About twenty people died um, from the two sides. Um, the black people fled across the tracks to Greenwood, um, and then the the white people dispersed and they gathered a growing mob. Um, the white police officers, rather than trying to quell the violence, they deputized um, hundreds, maybe up to 700 of the white men so that and gave them implied permission to kill, even saying, there's a quote um, saying just round, uh, you can go round up and shoot an Um, N-word. Get yourself an N-word. That was like, what they were saying to these deputies. They deputized 700 of them um, and basically with that gave them implied immunity for whatever they would do. Hmm. Um, and they, uh, 12, uh, different reports put the number differently, but um, uh, eyewitness accounts um, talk about um, a dozen or more 
airplanes yeah. that got involved in burning Greenwood down. So 12 or more white men went back to their uh, airplanes and they got uh, turpentine balls, uh, flammable materials, nitroglycerin, mm-hmm. uh, kerosene balls, and they um, they uh, also brought guns into the planes. There's uh, eyewitness r- reports of the, the guns being discharged from the airplanes. So a, a dozen airplanes took off and went and just started doing passes, uh, strafing runs on Greenwood and discharging um, just flammable materials um, and uh, burning the district down from the top down. Um, trucks of white men, uh, just uh, they would pile into trucks and they would just drive through the streets of Greenwood um, shooting people. Um, there was a machine gun involved. They, they brought a machine gun out and used it to... Um, to terrorize, kill people. Um, and they started just going door to door and just looting buildings, like taking valuables. Because um, a lot of, it was just like built on resentment and jealousy. So they started just going door to door and stealing things. Um, and white people, uh, or, or sorry, the black people, when they would surrender, they would come out of buildings with their hands up. Um, the, many of them were taken as like, prisoners, uh, but many of them were just shot and killed. Because again, you have these uh, deputized men who just have immunity to kill people. Um, and so uh, so it was just terror. Hmm. And they say that um, there were about 300 people that were killed, 1,200 or so burned, 183 people hospitalized, There are many gun and fire wounds. Um, And this is a report from, um, a report to the Red Cross. There were about um, 531 that uh, had to get some type of uh, medical treatment. And 10,000 people were left homeless. Um, People lost babies. There were miscarriages. Um, And people died while in the hospital. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And and I kind of want to just like pause and just like white people want to like encourage you to to pause from just the facts of the story and just imagine being one of like the the kids who lives there in the Greenwood district and you what it would have unfolded like from their perspective like you're just living your life in this community that's lively and full of hope go into one of the 23 churches and um and there's this idea that like oh the world on the outside isn't really safe and doesn't really see us but we're building something here and then you hear like the newspaper stories went out of what happened with with dick Rowland. you know from uh the adults whispering that there's uh lynchings is a thing and that that's being called for and then 
the morning of you start to hear gunshots in the distance and you don't really understand what's happening. And then you hear more and more gunshots and machine gun fire and it starts to get closer and closer. And then your parents flee with you. Many of the black people um, fled up the, uh, the railroad tracks trying to get away from all the, the burning that was happening. Um, and you just like turn down an alley and you see a truck driving by with guns and just discharging them. And uh, you turn down another alley and you see buildings just burning, some of them from the bottom up as uh, uh, the, the looters would take the wealth and then they would burn the homes by starting a fire in the center of the home. And some of them burning from the top down from these balls that were being dropped from airplanes just yeah. swirling overhead. Like it would have felt like hell. Uh, just complete terror col- collapsing in on the community from every side. Terrorism, like just domestic terrorism, um, genocide. I mean, just those words that we we throw around, but this is what that was. That was an act of terrorism against American citizens. I, I mean, just the horror. And I think... The last uh, Tulsa or uh, Greenwood resident died recently. Mm -hmm. Um, And so just the impact of that has been felt for the generations afterwards because people were left homeless. They wouldn't help them rebuild their homes. Like you were saying, there's no insurance claims. Like the victims had to basically, many of them just were left homeless and there was nothing like... I imagine many went back to sharecropping. I mean, everything taken away within an instant, Mm -hmm. within a moment, Mm -hmm. you know, within a day or two, just everything. Life's normal and then, you know, everything gone. Well, and then, so they did rebuild Greenwood. Yes. But after that, if you're a Greenwood resident who's been through that, you know, like, I can't stand too tall or they're going to cut me down again. Exactly. It's like, I need to... Thrive. I need to build something for my family, but let me make sure I don't get ahead of the white people. Yeah. Or look what they have done. Look what they will do. Uh, like you said, every insurance claim was denied. Um, Tulsa didn't pay any kind of reparations or restitution, um, to this yeah. day. No kind of restitution. And in fact, in a naked attempt to uh, to make it more difficult to rebuild, uh, Tulsa change the codes, the local codes, in order to make it more difficult, more costly for them to rebuild the structures. The, you know, the justice person inside of me is like, you know, is angry and sad, but like, did anything happen to the, I mean, I would imagine that some of the people that did that would get in trouble. Did anybody get in trouble? Did anybody, any of the people that were white in the mob or the, even the sheriffs or the deputized people, did any of them get charged with anything? No, actually kind of the opposite. After the events that, that took place, uh, black people were put into like internment camps and they actually needed a white person to come vouch for them and say that they were safe, a safe person in order to be released from custody. Like the black people were put into custody and needed a white person to come vouch for them. And then they had to, after that, carry green card, carry like ID cards signed by a white person to say that they were safe. And that mm. they, you know, wouldn't try to take revenge or something. And no, 
no justice ever came to any of the white people who had participated or instigated the violence. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, I just heard about this like maybe a couple of years ago. What's why have I not heard about this until I'm 30 years old or you know, a lot of our listeners are probably around that age, but why are we just now hearing about this? Why haven't we heard about it? I would think that it's whitewashing, just a whitewashing of history, um, revising history, because we want, white people want to be, still be good. They just want to be, they, they, they don't want the horror of everything that happened to be as bad as it was. And it's just a way to make it go away um, and whitewash it. But what would you say? Yeah, it's because white people want to feel good, but they also want to be superior. And if you let the narrative be that we're superior because we stomp on black people, then that doesn't support your thesis, which is that we're good and superior. Right. So they had to erase the story. They had to live with the reality of what, uh, what happened in secret. Like they couldn't even admit it to themselves. They, they kept the wealth that they had looted um, and none of the jewelry or valuables that were stolen were returned to the black community. So white people lived with the gains of what they had done with no consequences of what they had done um, and then lived with this and just hushed it, just for, forgot what had happened, literally forgot what had happened. Yeah. Um, erased it from the history books. This was not part of school curriculum in Oklahoma even until 2018. Yeah. Uh, so they just wiped it out of the history books so that they could live with this false narrative that's disproved by what happened, that they just were better than the black community. Yeah. But it was it was only because of all the, the racial violence and terrorism that that was true. And if you admit that, then you undercut your own argument. I want to kind of talk about how white America will put a quick fix on something and not really deal with the root of the issue and how for such a long time there'll be nothing. Like Tulsa has hadn't discussed this issue. It wasn't part of history. It was just nothing for decades and decades and decades. And now with technology and people being able to read the stories um, and it becomes more of a global story, especially as we're dealing with Black Lives Matter um, and just some of the uh, stories of other race riots where black towns were obliterated. Um, it's coming forth now. They're doing things like, oh, let's put up a, a, a center or let's put Black Lives Matter on the street or let's change all the names to stuff. But it doesn't really get to the heart of the issue. Um and therefore, we don't have to really deal with the ugliness because, hey, we're going to fix it here, but we're not really, nobody's brought to justice. Because I imagine people that participate in that, in that, some of them live, you know, to ripe old ages, no justice. They got to continue to live in those communities and knowing, and, they're, and, and the residents knowing or their children knowing this man did this to my house. Because these people, they would know each other. They would know, you know, the families. They would, they would look at faces of people coming into their house to destroy. They know each other. Um, they know, you know, families knew each other. And it's just, which makes it even more horrific that after everything's burnt to the ground, it's just like, okay, business as usual, as if this 
horrible thing didn't happen. Can you can you guys explain? Maybe we can end on this. Why not dealing with something in a healthy way is not healthy. Like, why why do we think? And maybe not so. Why do we think? But why is it unhelpful to pretend like it didn't happen? Um, why is it? Why do we think it's beneficial for our situation as a whole? to like just sweep it under the rug and don't talk about it. Why is that unhelpful? I'm, I know that's unhelpful with relationships as someone who's married, has children, has friendships. It's, that's unhelpful. But why is, it, why is it unhelpful in regards to history? Mm-hmm. Because we live in stories. We see our lives in the context of stories and we paint stories around our lives. Uh, and from those stories, we derive like the meaning and identity of who we are. And by not dealing with Tulsa and by just wiping it from the history books and forgetting it, people, white people, put themselves into a story that was a false narrative. And there's no way living in a false story, there's no way that you can um, live in a a false reality that isn't going to have bad consequences. Like... You, if you're not dealing with the reality of what you did and how you got there and um, repenting and making it right, then you're going to still be haunted by it. And I think that that's like what we've seen. The ideas of white supremacy have morphed through time. They've like shifted through time. That white people have used different strategies through time um, in the different chapters of the story. But even to today... We are haunted by uh, the subtle underlying philosophy behind what happened in Tulsa. It's just taken a different form. Well, and what we don't think about is that after these people got through killing and, 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 and burning and destroying, those white people went back to their everyday life. They went back to... Going to church on Sunday, they went back to working. They went back to being a community um, and raising children. So, can you imagine murderers <laughs> and thieves that have not been brought to justice, then raising their children and being proud of what they did? Their children knowing that they did it. Some of their children probably helped them do it. Like, what is life like not being brought to justice for killing over 300 people, for burning over 1,200 people, for causing at least eight miscarriages, um, and for rendering children orphans? Like, how do you, how do you, go back to a normal. And so that legacy is passed down from generation to generation because it's unresolved. And we know just on a base level, like if we look at the scriptures, like God, look at, look at how stories in the Bible are recounted. And when the Lord, like we believe that the scriptures are inspired by God, they, they're given to men to write, but they come from the Lord. He doesn't leave anything out in the stories of man. 
he, in the, like David, a man after his own heart, he gives us the good, the bad, and the ugly of David's. Like, he does not leave anything out. Um, and he reconciles stories. He reconciled, like he reconciled Ruth, the Moabites through Ruth. He, um, he, he will come through and reconcile something that happened hundreds of years ago but it's still on his heart and it's still on his mind because restorative justice is, is, is God. Like God is restorative justice. What everybody else will forget, God, he remembered the cries of his people in Egypt. And after 400 plus years of slavery, was it 400 years? Mm-hmm. He sent Moses back. He does not forget. Mm-hmm. He does not forget, especially when things are not made right. Um, And so I believe that, I mean, and even look at the the, the people who they went through those, the generational wealth that and blessing from those black families, what their children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren how they could have been blessed financially, just the stability, just the healing from trauma. Because some of those residents, their parents had been slaves or they were born into slavery. And to see this hope that is birth, being born into slavery, and then now I'm not only free, but I have something that I can call my own and that to be wiped out. Just the healing that was taking place. Just think about if no, if none of the riots had happened across the country and black people would have just been left alone to thrive and just where we would be as a society and a culture, because that in itself is bad enough that they didn't give black people anything out of slavery, but that black people were able to um, um, make fertile, like, just this make basically make fertile soil out of like concrete out of nothing just the healing through the generations that would have come forth if they would have just been left to do that if then there had been a paradigm shift and okay they're doing well and they're our neighbors and they're creating their own and we're creating our own. Just think about how society would have flourished and how much healing and reparations and restoration would have happened. But because that didn't, then the, the trauma goes on for generations. Because not only are you not repenting for what you're, you're, you've done, but you've passed that on to your, through, your, um, through the generations. And then the black people... They have they have not received you know uh, restitution, and they're passing that pain through the generations. And to think that that just goes away, it does not go. It just doesn't disappear until it's dealt with. And God, He gives us the process of healing and restoration and repentance. Like God doesn't need repentance. He really doesn't need us to repent. Repent. For him, he doesn't need it for himself. The process of forgiveness, repentance, forgiveness, restoration, and healing is for us as a community of creation to be able to make things right with each other. And we even see 
in the Old Testament, when God gave Moses all these laws and, and guides, like for when someone was hurt in this way, or if, if, if a cow kicked a pregnant woman. I mean, he, he laid out all these things that were centered around making things right, even to the point of, hey, you guys need to lay out some of your crop and let allow people to come and eat. And poor people, like, leave some for the poor. Leave some. Like, he is a make-right God. Even, if, even when man forgets, God never forgets. And so the denial of that process is an affront to God. It's an affront to God. And he still hasn't forgotten. And our bodies, our minds, our hearts, they have not forgotten because we continue to perpetuate that through the generations, and it won't be made right until it's acknowledged. Yeah, and it compounds. It does. Like the, the wealth of the white people who looted Tulsa has compounded. Yes. And the poverty that they struck on the black community and the, the trauma, and then trauma compounds because yes. people who have been traumatized are more likely to uh, display violence later on. It's like uh, we see that in World War uh, II veterans, Vietnam veterans. We have compassion on them as a society because we know that they have been through trauma and PTSD. And so we provide as a nation all these mental health resources and there's like a respect and a, uh, a compassion mm-hmm. that, that is given to them. But, but we don't see how, like we live in a false story because we've whitewashed history. We don't see how we have been as a society complicit in, in inflicting trauma for really 400 years, but, but like yeah. up to the present on the black community. And then we don't, extend that same compassion to the black community. And instead you'll see white people just like wanting to blame everything on the victims to today and exactly. talking about how you know, the, they, you know, were selling loose cigarettes. So they deserved what they got, you know, but, right. but we don't have compassion because we're living in the wrong narrative. And the other thing, when you were talking about the scripture, I just wanted to add that one of my favorite kind of demonstrations of how God cares about, uh, past sins, like even before the current generation. Yeah. There's a really cool um, passage where, um, uh, so you kind of referenced this actually, that um, God in his law said that they, the Israelites needed to rest their fields every seventh year. Yes. And on that year of rest, the part of the purpose of that year of rest was so that um, aliens and strangers, so like foreigners, uh, immigrants, mm-hmm. um, widows, orphans, and the poor yes. could come to that field and could eat um, whatever grew there. So mm-hmm. even though they wouldn't tend to the field, some stuff would still grow up from past seeds that have fallen. Uh, and, and that food was for the poor. Mm-hmm. And Israel never obeyed that law. They never actually practiced it. Mm-hmm. And so then um, 490 years later, they're going into exile and God says that he's going to send them into exile for 70 years, one year for every year that you have failed to rest <laughs> the fields yeah. that I told you to rest. Mm-hmm. So God is choosing the length of the exile based on things that happened 490 years ago. Yeah. Uh, that he's, he exists outside of time, he sees, he's right now just uh, like God in himself is just as present with 
the people who are suffering in Tulsa and cares uh, in uh, in Greenwood and cares about them just as much from his perspective as he is with us. Like he doesn't have favoritism of one generation over another or not. one type of person over another. He is a God who who has compassion. He even when he tells us mourn with those who mourn. Yeah. That is a revelation of something about him that he mourns with those who mourn. He sees and empathizes with those who are suffering and who are victims. And he cares about stuff that's happened in the past. It's just biblically factual. It is. And and again, for a lot of our listeners, like you don't have to be a Christian to listen to this and to know this. We're not trying to slip in some like secret gospel presentation. Like we are telling you what Christianity actually believes precisely because we want you to be able to um, to know how Christianity has failed to live up to this and to hold us to account. Like you can share, like it's it's helpful for you to know um, whether or not you believe what, what, what Christianity teaches, what it ought to be so that you can hold us to an account of that. So, yeah. Because that's what we ought to live up to. And um, you know, if you don't believe in in Christianity, but you can still like, um, you know, people who do. <laughs> yes. And when you see them failing to to live up to what they say or what they claim, you can tell them this, or you can just share this podcast with them and say, like, you're not living up to the reality of what what this thing is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, whether or not you you believe that Scripture is authoritative, um, it's still, I think, worth knowing. <laughs> yeah. What it says, and and it's just factually true that in the Bible. It's not a true argument that if I wasn't there, I have no responsibility to make it right. Right. We see that disproven over and over again. And the whole basis of Christianity is we're all fallen because of Adam and all saved because of Jesus. And neither of those things happened in my lifetime. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast and be able to vote for future topics and listen to full interviews, you can check us out at patreon.com backslash black history for white people. Remember that all of the money that you give in the first 10 episodes will all go to the Denton African American Scholarship Foundation. On our next episode, we will be discussing Confederate monuments. We'll leave you with this quote from Coretta Scott King. Hate is too great a burden to bear. It injures the hater more than it injures the hated.